Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. Please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com to make sure you don't miss a single episode. And while our show is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can become part of our team with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to Feliz Navidad, written and recorded by seven-time Grammy winner Jose Feliciano, one of our seven guests on this very special holiday episode of Songcraft. Today we speak with seven writers about seven songs that have become modern-day Christmas classics. In addition to Feliciano, we'll hear from Philip Springer, who composed the music for Eartha Kitt's 1953 classic Santa Baby, a song that was largely forgotten until Madonna recorded it in the late 1980s opening the floodgates for future cover versions that cemented it as a standard. We'll talk with Songwriters Hall of Famer and Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Mike Stoller, who makes his second appearance on Songcraft, to give us the scoop on Elvis Presley's recording of the classic Santa Claus is Back in Town, which Mike co-wrote with longtime partner Jerry Lieber just moments before the King recorded it. We'll also catch up with former Motown and Stax recording artist Dr. Mabel John, who spent more than a decade as the leader of Ray Charles' backing singers, the Ray Letts. She is the co-writer of That Spirit of Christmas, a song best known for its use in a scene from the film Christmas Vacation. Mark Lowry, who wrote the lyrics to Mary Did You Know, will join us to discuss how a recitation intended for a church Christmas play became perhaps the best-known contemporary religious holiday standard, with cover versions by long lists of artists including Natalie Cole, Reba McIntyre, Jessica Simpson, Mary J. Blige, CeeLo Green, and Pentatonix. We'll have the chance to talk with former Motown staff writer Brian Wells, who co-wrote Stevie Wonder's top ten hits A Place in the Sun and Yester Me, Yester You, Yesterday. He and partner Ron Miller co-wrote three songs on Stevie's 1967 holiday album, including the title track Someday at Christmas, which has since been covered by Diana Ross, Pearl Jam, and Justin Bieber. Finally, we'll catch up with television producer Lee Mendelson, the man behind the classic Charlie Brown Christmas special, who became an accidental songwriter when he needed lyrics for composer Vince Guaraldi's Christmas Time Is Here, a song that went on to be recorded by everyone from Tony Bennett to Lyle Lovett to Diana Krall. So pour yourself a cup of eggnog and gather around that Yule log to escape the wintry draft with your friends here at Songcraft. We'll explore the rhymes and reasons behind the songs that mark this season. It's your gift from Paul and Scott. For to give, it's all we've got. Wow, a, a poem. A poem. I, I didn't know there was a poem coming today. Uh, maybe I feel like we should interview you for having written that Christmas poem now. Which I'm is the poet laureate of song. Sure to be a classic. <laughs> that one is. Well, I got a little inspired, you know, and plus uh, I like to keep the cheese in the season. All right, we're going to get you away from your rhyming dictionary. Uh, I'm going to have to confiscate that from you. Um, but we are going to be talking about some songs that that have become classics. And in that spirit, I mean, I'm a big Christmas music fan. Um, I always love to hear the the holiday songs. Some people don't, you know. Some people, those, those uh, you people know, are dumb. but they're Ebenezer Scrooges. Yeah. So we've put together a playlist, which you can find at songcraftshow.com slash Christmas. There's 150 different Christmas songs on there. And get this, 
150 different artists. So no repeated titles. Impressive. No repeated artists. So it is like a an absolutely delightful holiday listening experience. So crank that sucker up on Christmas Day when you're opening your presents from Santa. And uh, I know that you will really enjoy that playlist. However, I do want to point out one of those 150 songs that's kind of a special one. And that is a song called Light of the World uh, by an artist named Lauren Daigle. And that was a song that was written by my accomplished co-host, Mr. Paul Duncan, right here. I am in the presence of, of holiday greatness. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> but, you know, Paul, every songwriter wants to write a successful holiday song. And as someone who's done it, you know, why is that something that's that's kind of a desirable goal that so many songwriters share? Well, I, I tell you, first of all, that the concept of writing a Christmas song, is it's intimidating right out of the gate because yeah. the the songs that you're trying to stand alongside, I mean, you're talking about songs like Winter Wonderland right. and Let It Snow, not even to mention the silent nights of the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, you know, first off, I think you just set out to write something that's that's going to make an album or something that's going to going to be heard at all. Um, the thought of trying to uh, trying to occupy space next to some of those classics, uh, it's hard to even let that enter your mind. Right, um, right. But it is nice to write a song that's going to have a chance to come around year yeah. after year. And, and when you're a songwriter, you get paid every time that song comes around. So that's kind of a nice, uh, it's the gift that keeps that's, on giving. That's true. And, uh, you know, I, far be it for me to suggest anything uh, associated with Christmas that's got a commercial angle to no, it. No, no, there's know. absolutely nothing crassly commercial about no, Christmas no, these days. Not so. nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> But let, let's go ahead and get this Christmas party started, and let's do it with Jose Feliciano, uh, a true international superstar. He's a virtuoso guitarist and a celebrated vocalist. Um, Jose Feliciano found fame in the U.S. with his hugely successful Feliciano album in 1968. He earned a, a top five hit with his interpretation of The Doors, Light My Fire, that same year, and has gone on to win seven Grammy Awards. His perennial hit, Feliz Navidad, was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame and was named by ASCAP as one of the most performed holiday songs of all time. Hi, I'm Jose Feliciano, and I'm the writer of Feliz Navidad. And I hope every time that you hear it, you have the merriest and merriest of Christmases. God bless you all. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Prospero año y felicidad. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Prospero año y felicidad. started out really so crazy. I was sitting home um, in July, never really even dreaming of writing a Christmas song until uh, my producer at the time who was doing the album with me uh, said to me, why don't you write a Christmas song? Hmm. And I thought to myself, well, you know, how do you compete with White Christmas and, uh, <laughs> right. uh, and these other great yeah. Christmas classics. Sure. Well, um, I put it together with uh, Rick Gerard, who was a producer. I put it together, and it came together pretty quick, I would say. Mm. Uh, I played uh, the, the Quattro, which is a Puerto Rican 
instrument that is played a lot on Christmas carols. Right. And uh, and then I I played um, uh, the accompanying guitar, and then I I had the fortune of playing bass on it. Hmm. Uh, and I had my Brazilian drummer, Paulino. He was playing the drums. Right. And he played. Uh, and he played. He had the Christmas percussion. You know the jingle bells and all those things. And he put that on. I put on the guido, which is a, a gourd. And it happened to be that my uncle had given me the quattro that I used, plus the gourd. So it had all of the Puerto Rican flavor in it. Uh, but the Christmas album, that particular album, came together very well. I did some some of the classics like uh, Jingle Bells as an instrumental, right. the first Noel. And um, now on the new Christmas album, I've done uh, I've done some really nice things. I did uh, I'll Be Home for Christmas. Hmm. Uh, uh, I did uh, Hallelujah in Spanish. And, and you have a, you have a like a child duet now on Feliz Navidad, correct? Yes, I well I do it on Feliz Navidad. Yes, I have uh, a helmet son who. Um, it's really he's a little friend, you know. He, hmm. He's not uh, he's not interested in being a star, but he's interested in being a star. You know what <laughs> I mean? <laughs> it's it's interesting actually to to me that um, the song, the structure, the the lyrics. You know, it's it has part A and it has part B, and you know that just sort of repeats over and over and it absolutely works yeah. you know and and it's it's not overwritten okay. how, how did you decide no. to just sort of you know leave it clean and simple well you know i guess i'm proof that songs don't have to uh fit logically or, or uh not everything is deep and poetic you know mm. that things can be simple and just down to down to earth and you know, when I wrote Feliz Navidad, I really never thought it, that it would be a classic. I That wasn't my intent, you know. But I, I don't think any composer uh, goes out there and says, or even artists, uh, painters, you know, they don't take their brush, brush and say, I think I'll go paint the Mona Lisa. It just <laughs> isn't done, you know. Right. So, so I like to think of myself as... Uh, uh, a painter, of, uh, though it's with my music that I paint, uh, I like to think of myself in those terms. I've never, I don't know, I've always been a free thinker, uh, uh, a free believer, believing in things that, that you know, and uh, for myself, I don't try to advocate, you know, but try and be a good Christian, uh, a good Christian is somebody who truly believes, uh, and I, with what I do, try to bring out uh, the message that he gave to me, which is, nothing can be done without God. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. there you go. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, and there, there is so much joy in this song. Um, I, I feel like every time I hear it, I, I can hear you smiling while you sing it. It sounds like it must have been fun to record. It was. It was very much fun to record, um, both times. The first time with uh, Rick Gerard, and now the second time with Elmer Sharp. 
mm. and with Fabi, I think, uh, hey, what person isn't going to think that a kid uh, <laughs> isn't cute? You know, and he's a cute <laughs> little kid. Right. So, so when, when you originally wrote the song, I mean, w w the, the decision to write it, you know, it's not in Spanish, it's not in English, it's in both. It switches. How did you decide to approach it that way? So they couldn't cut me off any other radio station. <laughs> That's perfect. So, so that if the Spanish stations turned it on, even though they don't, they don't necessarily like uh, to, to listen to English, they would have to. <laughs> you know, right. and then I got and then I got the American people who don't speak Spanish to hear me in English, and they hear me in Spanish saying <laughs> "Feliz Navidad," which means "Merry Christmas." So, right. you know, I think it was a lesson for all in bridging the gap. Well, you know, I, I uh, I'm married into a Spanish-speaking family. My in-laws speak Spanish. Oh and my God! So for the first okay. holiday that I spent with them, I was able to say to them. Prospero año y felicidad, because I knew it from your song. <laughs> oh, so I'm glad I could help you. Yes, thank thank you for helping me bridge that gap in my own family. But it 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 is it, sure. it's amazing how music can do that. Uh, it it offers a, sure. a sort of a, a commonality between um, people of different backgrounds, and and that song mm -hmm. uh, does that because I was able to hear it on WLAC growing up. And right. then my in-laws heard yeah. it on, on their radio stations, and it's super cool. I've been, I've been blessed. Uh, really, I have. Well, everybody knows Feliz Navidad, and everybody knows the song that was composed by our next guest, a 91-year-old Brill-building veteran who's still at it. In addition to giving the world a Christmas classic, he penned Frankie Lane's top five hit, Moonlight Gambler, Frank Sinatra's How Little It Matters, How Little We Know, and Cliff Richard's The Next Time, which hit number one in the UK in 1963. Additionally, he wrote songs that have been recorded by Judy Garland, Dusty Springfield, and Elvis Presley. But let's turn it over to the man himself to hear about the creation of the world's first sexy Christmas song. This is Phil Springer. Uh, I'm the composer of Santa Baby written with my beautiful lyricist, Joan Javits. I've done a lot of writing, which I'll do for whatever time is remaining. I don't know if it'll happen because I'm 91 years old, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, we certainly hope you'll get a chance to write many more great songs, but tell us how you and Joan ended up writing what is now recognized as a Christmas standard. I go after lyricists like womanizers go after women. <laughs> right. um, I mean that. I knew that without a good lyric writer, no matter how gifted you might be, you cannot have hit songs. Yeah. Joan and I uh, had been a team for about three weeks in the summer of 1953. Joan got a call from a publisher. Uh, could she possibly write a song for Eartha Kitt uh, with the Christmas theme? And Joan asked me if I would write the music for that. I was quite um, negative about it because I said, now, Eartha Kitt was probably the sexiest woman in America. Right. And there's never been a Christmas song with a, a sexy theme, with a gold digger uh, singing to her boyfriend. Right, right. Uh, but Joan said, look, Phil, you just write the music and let me worry about uh, the theme of the lyrics. Right. So I went along with her and... Uh, we took a cab together from the Brill Building 
where the publisher had approved the title, Santa Baby. Uh, once he said he loves the title, Joan and I went back to my apartment, and I immediately got an idea for, for a melody. Right. So I, uh, I sang Santa Baby, and I said, now give me a line. Joan said, slip a sable under the tree. And I said, add two words to that phrase. So she said, slip a sable under the tree for me. And that immediately inspired the music. Da 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 I wrote it right away. Wow. And then she said, been an awful good girl, said the baby. I wrote this phrase. Been an awful good girl, said the baby. And then she said, okay, we're almost finished. And I said, okay, one more line and we got it. She said, so hurry down the chimney tonight. And I wrote, hurry down the chimney tonight. And that was the tune. Yeah, yeah. A few weeks later, I showed the tune to an arranger friend of mine. And he said, Phil, why don't you take the music you wrote for Been an Awful Good Girl and put that at the end for hurry down the chimney tonight and put the music that you wrote for Hurry Down the Chimney Night to Been an Awful Good Girl. Hmm, flip them, yeah. And I, I said, I love that suggestion. And that's how come the music was changed to this. Been an awful good girl, Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Yeah. And wow. in my opinion, uh, that is largely responsible for the success success of the song. Part of the magic of that song is that last line. Everybody loves that line. Right, right, yeah. Uh, the tune, except for that one change that I mentioned, took me only a 10 or 15 minutes at the most to write. And wow. Joan wrote only a small part of the lyric in, in that 10 or 15 minutes. Well, we worked for about a half hour, and we realized that we had a lot of work to do on the lyric. Yeah. So we made a date uh, to go out to her home in Westport uh, to finish a lyric. So that weekend, we went out to Westport, and we worked, and we got a few more lines, but we still couldn't finish the lyric yet. So uh, I said, Joe, look, let's meet again a week from now and go out again to your, to your house, which actually was her father's home. Right. And we went back uh, again that weekend. Now, what happened at that time was that everybody started getting very suspicious about me and Joan going away together. (laughs) Uh, And I had a girlfriend, and she was kind of a little suspicious that something besides songwriter was going on. So I said, Joan, let's kill that rumor. Let's take the guy that introduced us to Westport to your home just to be with us, have food, have fun, while we worked on the lyrics, so nobody's going to think that anything else besides songwriting is going on. Right. And that's just what happened. Wow. I took it over to the publisher. Right. Before I played it, I sort of apologized. I said, uh, guys, I'm not very proud of this tune, but it's the best that I could do for that lyrical idea. Yeah. I played it, and Joe jumped up, and he said, Phil, it's great. Never apologize again for that, too. <laughs> right, right. So about a week later, I got a phone call that Eartha Kitt had recorded the song. And from then on, it was smooth sailing. Santa baby, 
Just slip a sable under the tree for me. Been an awful good girl, Santa baby. So hurry down the chimney tonight. I understand that that uh, you know, of course, Eartha Kitt's version was a, a huge top five pop hit in 1953, and then in 1954, I understand she recorded uh, another version called "This Year's Santa Baby" that had that had different words that was yeah. was not really a hit. What what happened there? That was a big mistake on the part of the publishers. Hmm. They never should have put out five different versions in 1954 of Santa Baby. It totally confused the public. There was a country version, a kid's version, uh, uh, another type of version, and so forth. Yeah. And consequently, nobody knew what to play. Right, right. And for 28 years, that song only made a very small amount of money every year after 1953. Mm-hmm. In 1981, I bought Joan's share of the publishing rights, which had reverted 28 years later after we wrote it. Right. And I became the United States publisher of Santa Baby. Right. The first thing I did was to notify all the people in show business that I could, radio stations, music printers, Hal Leonard, everybody, that the original lyric of Santa Baby was the only allowable lyric of that song. Hmm. In 1987, I got a phone call from a mysterious lady who said, look, uh, I'm from an A&M Records. There is a top star who wants to record Santa Baby, provided you're willing to forfeit the mechanical royalties. Hmm. I said, who is the star? She said, you won't know that unless you say yes. <laughs> I thought for about, I'd say, one minute, and I said, okay, I won't ask for any royalties. Who is the top star? She said, Madonna. I almost fell off my chair. <laughs> I had made the right decision, you know, without even knowing who the star was. Yeah. Right, right. After that, everybody began recording Santa Baby. Wow. Hmm. It got into a motion picture, Driving Miss Daisy, which won the Academy Award. Right, yeah. And after that, there, there's hardly any female star who hasn't recorded Santa Baby mm. oh, yeah. from that time on. But if I hadn't been very strict, because I got... Once I became the publisher, everybody started wanting to write a new lyric to Santa Baby. Right. I absolutely closed the door Hmm. on that possibility. I said to everybody, whether they were in the music business or not, the only lyric is going to be the classic lyric that Jones wrote in 1953. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I believe that is why the song today is a treasure all over the world. God bless you all, and... Have a happy holiday. Well, thank you, Phil, so much for giving us insight into the background of that song. We really appreciate it, and thank you for your time. Man, it is so cool to talk to a guy who was working as a songwriter in the Brill Building before rock and roll even existed. Um, There was a lot more to our conversation with Phil Springer that we'll be sharing soon on our Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And our sponsors who've pledged $5 or more per month will have the chance to check that out once we post it. And speaking of rock and roll, our next guest virtually invented it. He was named one of Rolling Stone Magazine's 100 Greatest Songwriters of All Time, and he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 
Mike Stoller's long list of songwriting credits includes Kansas City, Yakety Yak, Stand By Me, Poison Ivy, Love Potion Number no. 9, and more than 20 titles recorded by Elvis, including Hound Dog, Jailhouse Rock, and Treat Me Nice. You know, Paul, I think perhaps his most outstanding achievement, however, is that Mike is the very first person to ever appear as a guest here on Songcraft more than once. I'm sure he considers that his biggest accomplishment. <laughs> but we encourage you all to go listen to episode 27 for an in-depth conversation about Mike's amazing career. But first, we called him up recently to get the story on how Elvis Presley's infamous manager, Colonel Tom Parker, commissioned Mike and his writing partner, Jerry Lieber, to write one of Elvis's best-known Christmas recordings, Santa Claus is Back in Town. Christmas. Christmas, Christmas. Well, Christmas time, put it baby, and the snow is falling on the ground. Christmas, Christmas. Well, Mike Stoller. I'm a co-writer with my late partner, Jerry Lieber, of the song Santa Claus is Back in Town. You know, Santa Claus is Back in Town is the opening track on Elvis's Christmas album, which has sold more than 16 million copies and is recognized as the best-selling holiday album of all time in the U.S., the single version with Blue Christmas on the flip side has also been certified platinum. So how does one go about writing one of the most successful Christmas songs of all time? Elvis was recording uh, a Christmas album uh, out here at Radio Recorders, and uh, we got a call to come in. They needed another song. And we went out to a little room at Radio Recorders, um, there was no piano in that little room, and we figured, well, we'll, we'll write a blues so we could kind of figure out the humming the tune, how it would go, and started playing with the lyrics. Huh. And, you know, we had written a lot of blues, and since it was about Christmas and it was about Santa Claus, Right. It was about 15 minutes. We came back into the room where we had met before, and, of course, the colonel was there, and he said, what took you so long? <laughs> and um, probably one of the wittiest things he ever said. <laughs> uh, at any rate, we taught Elvis the song. He loved it, and that was it. Wow. So you... you wrote it right there in the studio. So at, by the time Elvis recorded it, the song was what, like an hour old? Uh, close to an hour. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is absolutely amazing. Hot off the press, as they say, <laughs> although we had no press, just a pencil. <laughs> right, you didn't even have your, your piano. Right, but, you know, we knew how it would go. Yeah. Having written a, a number of 12-bar blues before. Right, right, right. Well, and that's a good point, you know, because because you and Jerry were very much uh, steeped in the blues. And Elvis's performance on Santa Claus is Back in Town is, you know, it, it's particularly bluesy. I mean, he really, he, he goes for it. Were you guys, did you stay at the studio when he actually recorded it? As I recall, we... We stayed there, and while the, he did a few takes, 
you know, when we first met him, which was when he asked us to come to the studio during the recording of the four songs we wrote for Jailhouse Rock. Right. And after we had to pass muster with the colonel, we came in and we found to our surprise that he knew as much about the blues as we did. Yeah, yeah. So we we hit it off. You yeah. Know, we hit it right off. The only thing we had to ask Elvis to call us uh, Jerry and Mike rather than Sir. <laughs> <laughs> that, that Southern politeness. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and he was, we were much older than he We were two years older than Elvis. <laughs> right, right. He had to pay his respect. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, Elvis recorded more than 20 Lieber and Stoller songs, but by the time he released his second holiday album, Elvis Sings the Wonderful World of Christmas, he wasn't really recording you guys' songs anymore. What put a damper on that winning combination? We kind of broke apart after uh, 59 or 60. Yeah, yeah. We got into a contretemps with the, the colonel. Yeah. We had presented to Elvis... Uh, not directly, but through the music publishers, and they went to the colonel. Uh, what was probably a kind of opportunity that he wished for, right? which was to play the lead in a movie based on a Nelson Algren novel. The producer of the film had lined up Ilya Kazan to direct, and he came to Jerry and me, to write the score right. and to help get Elvis. Right. And when we presented this great opportunity for Elvis, and not to mention for us, <laughs> right. uh, the word came back that the colonel says, if you ever interfere in the career of Elvis Presley, you will never work again in wow. New York, Hollywood, whatever. Right. So we kind of lost interest because it would have been a great opportunity. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah. Well, you know, thinking about Santa Claus is back in town, I mean, Elvis... <laughs> Going back to Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> is there a version of that song that you particularly like uh, other than the Elvis version? Well, of course, Mae West is a laugh. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's funny and it's a piece of... Uh, um, American history in terms of, <laughs> right. uh, you know, it's, it's special. Well, it's Christmas time, pretty baby, and the snow is falling on the ground. Well, it's Christmas time, pretty baby, and the snow is falling down. Listen, I like, uh, all the versions I've heard, but Elvis really nailed the blues um, aspect, right? Uh, in terms of the performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. Wow, that was great to talk with Mike again, and of course, my Elvis appreciation is well established, <laughs> including Indeed. that Christmas album. Um, I've always liked his version of "Here Comes Santa Claus," which some people might not realize was written by Gene Autry. Yeah, which is uh, actually, I think Gene did the original recording of it, and and that's the version that is in my personal favorite holiday movie of all time, Christmas Vacation. Mm. Great film, 
always it's not Christmas till I see that. Um, and that also happens to be the movie that introduced me to the song That Spirit of Christmas by Ray Charles. And that was on Ray's 1985 album, The Spirit of Christmas, um, which also, by the way, includes the best version of Little Drummer Boy of all time. But that's just that's just a bonus. <laughs> that's bonus. That's an aside right there. You can you can go listen to that later on. But, um, you know, there's that scene in, in Christmas Vacation where Clark Griswold gets locked in the attic and he winds up finding some reels of footage of uh, family Christmas celebrations from his childhood. Yep. And I think the music supervisor made a, a great choice by putting that spirit of Christmas to that particular scene. And that song was written by our next guest, who is Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Little Willie John's younger sister and was the first female solo artist signed to Motown's Tamla label in the 1950s. She would go on to score a top 10 hit as a Stax artist with Your Good Thing Is About to End and serve as the leader of Ray Charles' backing singers, the Ray Letts, for more than a decade. In the 1980s, she established a Los Angeles-based charity called Joy Community Outreach that feeds and clothes the homeless. Let's meet her. My name is Mabel John. I'm one of the writers and co-producers of the Christmas song that Ray Charles did, The Spirit of Christmas. It was written by my son, Joel Webster, and Ray Charles because he wanted a different kind of Christmas song that would last forever. And I hope you enjoy it. Merry Christmas. Christmas is the time of year For being with the ones we love Sharing so much joy and cheer What a wonderful feeling Watching the ones we love my brother is the late little Willie John. Yes. Yeah, yeah. God has blessed the John family. On November 3rd, I made 87 years old. Wow. My goodness. But uh, in 1973, yeah. um, two of my sons, without me us asking for it, were sign, assigned to Ray Charles Record Company. I was already traveling with Ray and the leader and director of the Ray Charles Raylets, and um, my children, we were writing songs together and singing them, and then they wanted to record, so I said, wow, Mr. Charles is on the road, and this is our off-season, I'm going to rent some studio time, Right. and I'll take you all in there, and we will do I uh, said, so we're going to do them what people call demos, mm, yeah. but I don't believe in demos. Let's do some real real music. Right, <laughs> right. So Ray Charles came home early. I was at my office, and but my sons were in his studio, and he heard someone in the studio singing, and he asked the people in the office, who's in the studio? And uh, they told him, so that's Mabel John's son's. They're cutting some demos. And he called me on the phone, and he always called me John. Right. He said, John, who, is, who, is, who are these guys that's in my studio? I said, oh, my God, are you back? <laughs> and he said, well, it is home. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, but I was, they're my sons. I was trying to get them in and out while you were out of the studio, because when he's in town... There was no time for anyone else to get in the studio 
because he lived in the studio. Mm, yeah, yeah. So he said, oh, I'm not telling you for that reason. He said, what are you planning to do with them? I said, well, they want to record, and um, I just thought this would be a good time on our off-season. So he asked, where do we get the songs from? Right. I said, well, the three of us wrote them. So he said, uh, okay, and you all write all the songs, and you didn't tell me? I said, <laughs> I'm busy doing what you hired me to do, <laughs> and I'm not trying to make you agree to something that maybe you're not interested in. Right. Yeah, yeah. So he finally went back into the studio, and, of course, my sons were shocked that he was back. <laughs> and told them that he wanted to talk to them. He said, because I like what I'm hearing. Sure. That was the beginning of my sons getting contracts with Ray Charles Tangerine Records. Wow, that's amazing. He said, so whatever you all need to do, you can do anything. You can write, you can come in here and record it. It will cost you nothing. Wow. But I want to have first refusal. Yeah, yeah. I want to hear it first and see if it's something that we can use. And then if you want to record it, you can record it, too. They're yeah. your songs. Yeah, yeah. Okay. In 19, 1985, in the beginning of the year, Ray Charles got uh, Joel and myself together, and we listened to some traditional Christmas songs that, he was just going to do because everybody was, can, could identify with him. Right, yeah. He said, I want something new and fresh that could be released year after year after year. Sure. So my son Joel and I got together and we decided to write The Spirit of Christmas. Yeah. And after we wrote that and presented it to Ray, because... Joel uh, played piano very well, and we carried it to Ray, and Ray said, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Wow. And then he said to me, John, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to use this song as a title song for this Christmas album. Yeah. And, you know, people like uh, me and Scott, are, from our generation, a lot of us were exposed to that song for the first time through watching the movie Christmas Vacation. That must have been a, a, a shot in the arm for that song, too, which already had, you know, a, a, a classic feel and an audience uh, that were associated with You're it. You're absolutely right, because now remember, every year Christmas Vacation is, is shown again. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's a classic, too. So, Ray Charles is gone. But his foundation is not gone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joel is gone. I, that's from this physical earth. Yeah. Right. But the work that we did together still lives on. Wow. What a a great lady and an inspiration who has really used her strong faith to make a difference in in people's lives in the outreach that she does with the homeless right here in Los Angeles. She's really living out the Christmas spirit all year long. Um, you know, speaking of which, most of the religious Christmas songs that are standards were written hundreds of years ago. So it's kind of hard for someone to break in and contribute new material in that realm when you're up against uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing and, right. and Silent Night. Um, but, you know, plenty of people do write 
new religious Christmas songs, but you don't see a lot of those songs sticking around and getting recorded over and over. Yeah, you're right. You know, there is one song, however, that might just be the only song to become a spiritually themed Christmas standard in the last two or three decades. And we chased down the man who came up with it to give us the story about what inspired him. You know, he spent 18 years as a member of the legendary Gaither vocal band. He's released nearly 20 albums, and this Dove Award-winning Christian singer and comedian is best known to mainstream audiences all over the world as the writer of Mary Did You Know. It's been recorded by Natalie Cole, a version that we'll hear in a moment, uh, Reba McIntyre, Glenn Campbell, Jessica Simpson, Rascal Flatts, Mary J. Blige, CeeLo Green, Pentatonix, and, and many others. He wrote the lyrics that were put to music years later by Buddy Green, who's probably best known as a harmonica player. But we'll let you hear the story direct from the source. I'm Mark Lowry, and I wrote the lyrics to Mary Did You Know. Buddy Green wrote the music. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know? That your baby boy has come to make you new And this child that you deliver Will soon deliver you Mary, did you know? So, Mark, tell us how, uh, how that lyric came about. How, what was the genesis of that song? You know, I was raised in a Baptist church in Texas. Right. And Mama and I always talked about the virgin birth. You know, what was that like, you know? She'd been a young girl, and she'd never known a man, and she's pregnant with God's kid. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, sure. what was that like changing God's diapers? What was that like teaching <laughs> God to walk? What was that like teaching the Word of God to talk? Hmm. So we talked a lot about that. Then one day in 1984, my pastor called me and asked me if I would write the Christmas program for the church. Well... Being young and not knowing I couldn't, I said I would. <laughs> so what I did for our church, when I realized I couldn't write a Christmas, you know, just a whole bunch of new Christmas songs, good night, who would want to hear a whole night of new Christmas songs? What makes <laughs> Christmas Christmas is White Christmas, Silent Night, yeah. Sleigh Bells, Jingle Bells, Rudolph. Right, all I mean, the, the things that we grew up with. Sure. You know, I never liked new Christmas. Really, yeah, and still, and really, still kind of don't. I mean, my my favorite ones are, are like the, you know, the, all the ones that the Carpenters sang on their Christmas record. Mm. Yeah, and and um, and of course, Nat King Cole, chestnuts sure. roasting on an open fire. Oh my goodness! Yeah, and yeah. so um, so what I did, I took well-known Christmas songs. Yeah. And then I wrote little monologues to go between them. I wrote this one monologue that said, basically, I wonder if Mary realized the power, the authority, and the majesty hmm. she cradled in her arms that first Christmas. Hmm. I wonder if she realized those little fingers that were wrapped around hers were the same hands that had scooped out oceans and formed the rivers and those little feet were the same that had walked on streets of gold and been worshipped by angels. You know, we know she knew what the angel told her, but it, it didn't say he was going to die on a cross. Hmm. The angel didn't tell her that. Right. The angel didn't tell her he'd walk on water, that you'd heal the blind, raise the dead, none of that. Yeah. So I basically wrote it with the wonder of it, not a literal question. 
Yeah. You know, right, now when right. I get to heaven, I do have, I want to know what that was like. Sure. Anyway, most of the questions I have from Mary didn't make the song. The only ones that made the song were the ones that rhymed. <laughs> yeah, makes right, sense. Well, how did you eventually connect with Buddy Green, who, uh, who put the music to the song? Well, what happened was, in 1984, way before I was with the Gates of Vocal Band, I, I joined them in 1988. So right. I had this lyric, and, I, it, and I, I had other people try to put music to it. I sent it out as my Christmas card that first Christmas as I wrote it. Hmm. And I thought, maybe it's just a poem, you know? Yeah. And so, but Babby Mason tried to write music. Glenn Keysecker tried. Other people that I know who have written great songs tried. Yeah. But I just, they just, it just, I don't know why. It just didn't ring with me. Listen, the whole buddy thing, first of all, it had to have been a God thing because neither one of us have done it twice. Hmm. Neither one of us have ever written a song that's done what this song's done. Yeah. And both of us are songwriters and have written many, 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 many other songs. Yeah. yeah. Now, if Diane Warren had written this song, it would be one of many. Yeah, yeah. But God let an idiot and a harmonica player birth <laughs> this little baby. And we give all the glory to him because we know we all, all it was for me is, uh, is my normal curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love questions. I love I love answers too, but with God you get a lot more questions than answers. Now, I believe the first version of that song to get recorded was recorded in 1991 by Michael English, who was a fellow member of the Gaither Vocal Band with you at the time. Yes, How did that I all come together? It, I pushed it on him. Yeah. I'd just written it. He heard Buddy Green's uh, demo of it and didn't like it because Buddy's the country and Mike wanted to be more contemporary. Yeah. But Brown Bannister was his producer, for some reason he was at one of our Gaither concerts, and I cornered him and quoted the lyric to him. I didn't even have the melody memorized yet. I just quoted, I said, Michael needs to record this song I wrote. Here's the lyric. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day walk on water? And I just quoted it to him. Yeah. Well, he fell back against the car he was standing next to, all at the right place. Yeah. And I knew I had him. And so next thing I know, Michael released, and really his cut of it has been the definitive cut. Yeah. As far as more people have copied that arrangement than any other arrangement. Right. Right. The second recording was Kathy Matea. Right. The third recording was a opera singer named Kathleen Battle. But it was interesting. It went from contemporary Christian music to a country record, and now it's an opera song. <laughs> but now, if you want to hear my, I mean, when there's so many favorites, the pentatonic. Oh yeah. Oh, my Lord, have mercy. Wow. Yeah, it's had like 84 million views or something. It's amazing. They're amazing. I was at Walmart one year buying Christmas CDs. That's how long ago this was. Right. And I picked up Natalie Cole, and it was on there, and I didn't even know she recorded it. Wow. <laughs> and, and then I picked up Donnie Osmond, and it was on there, and I didn't know he had recorded it. Man. Jeez. And that's when I knew my baby had a life of its own. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and there's even a disco version by a lady named Christine W. Yeah. yeah. So while I was sitting at my Lazy Boy in Houston, <laughs> Texas, I was in I was telling dance clubs all over the world through Christine W. What I think about Jesus. Wow. Isn't that cool? <laughs> it's like when I sit in my Lazy Boy, which God knows is my favorite place on earth, <laughs> and I'm in my Lazy Boy watching that boy on The Voice. Between 14 and 16 million people saw that that night. Wow. I love telling people about Jesus. That's why I tour and travel, because I really believe 
that he's fabulous. Yeah. I think he's gotten a bad rap through a lot of people. You right. know, right. making him sound like he's so mad at the world and mean. But right. I found him, you know, the more I discover about him, the nicer he gets. <laughs> right, right. Mark, before I let you go, I understand that uh, you've got a new uh, podcast yourself. Why don't you tell us about that? And some of our listeners might want to go check it out. Well, it's called Dinner Conversations with Mark Lowry and Andrew Greer. We're, we're just showing that Christians are packed of freaks like everybody else, and we're all going, <laughs> and we're just showing how we try to get through stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and folks can find that on iTunes, or where, where's the best place for people iTunes, to get that? iTunes, uh, YouTube, uh, you can go to dinner-conversations.com. Very cool. Well, Mark, I appreciate you sharing some time with us today. My pleasure. Well, back in 1967, when Mark Lowry was a nine-year-old Texas kid, Stevie Wonder was up in Detroit, putting the finishing touches on the album Someday at Christmas, with a title track that has since become a holiday standard. The lyrics say, Someday at Christmas, men won't be boys, playing with bombs like kids play with toys. One warm December, our hearts will see a world where men are free. Someday at Christmas, there will be no wars. When we have learned what Christmas is for, when we have found what life's really worth, there will be peace on earth. You know, unfortunately, those lyrics are, are probably no less relevant today than they were 50 years ago when they were written. I don't know that we've made a, a ton of progress as a human race, but we still recognize this as a season of hope where we look beyond what is and, and contemplate what could be. The man who wrote the music for Someday at Christmas is a former Motown staff writer who wrote two of Stevie's top ten pop hits. He's earned four Clio Awards for music he composed for advertising campaigns, and he's Bette Midler's former music director. We had the chance to speak to him recently by phone at his home in New York. Merry Christmas. This is Brian Wells, and I am the co-writer of Someday at Christmas. Someday at Christmas, men won't be boys. Playing with bombs like kids play with toys. One warm December, our hearts will see a world where men are free. Mm, someday at Christmas, there'll be no wars. When we have learned what Christmas is for. Brian, we appreciate you taking some time with us today to talk about one of the great modern-day Christmas classics. What can you tell us about that song? Well, uh, first of all, let's give half the credit to the late, great lyricist Ron Miller. Hmm. Um, he wrote the lyrics, I wrote the music. We were, of course, on staff at Motown at that time. Ron, may he rest in peace, and I always wrote Melody First. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, he no doubt said, and I can't remember the precise moment, Write me a Christmas melody, and that's what I came up with. <laughs> right, right. And uh, he wrote those marvelous, profound lyrics that resonate today. Yeah. yeah. Now, how did you guys actually uh, end up signing with, with Motown to begin with? Ron was discovered uh, in Chicago, where he grew up, by no less than Barry Gordy, who founded Motown Records. And he was brought to Motown in Detroit. And he had been on staff, I'm going to guess and say a couple or three years. And um, his composer partner was returning to his native Florida. And Ron happened upon me one night when I was playing jazz at a restaurant, again, in Detroit. And uh, he asked me if I had written some melodies. I had no idea who the guy was, by the way. 
Uh, and I said, sure. So I played him a couple of things. He said, gee, those really sound good. And um, he invited me to come down to Hitsville, the name of the Motown complex, and we started writing together. Well, in, in a short period of time, Ron and I wrote A Place in the Sun and Yester Me, Yester You, Yesterday. Wow. So those are the the well-known songs that he and I wrote. So that was that was before the, the Someday at Christmas then? I think A Place in the Sun, then Someday at Christmas, and then Yester Me, Yester You, Yesterday. You know, Motown has such a mystique for us music fans, but I'd love to hear about what a real-life actual day was like for a Motown staff songwriter in those years. Well, I would get there uh, late morning, and uh, Ron and I would toss around some ideas. And, um, you know, as things go with creative people of whatever realm, sometimes it sticks to the wall and sometimes it doesn't. And by mid-afternoon, I was gone because I was giving piano lessons at the time, and I was just finishing up my degree. Uh, by the way, I thought I was going to law school. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> uh, but uh, when Motown offered a contract, uh, I had a big decision to make. Right. And I signed the contract, and I guess the world has one less attorney. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Now, when you guys wrote Someday at Christmas, um, was it the sort of thing where you knew, okay, Stevie's doing a, a Christmas record and we're going to try to write something for that? Or was it more kind of, let's write this thing and kind of see where it lands? I think there was a Christmas album in the offing. And um, we wrote a couple others that he has recorded. One title is A Warm Little Home on a Hill, and another one little Christmas tree. So it was it was part of that batch of, of it was all sort of a, yes, at the same I think time, you guys. Yes, batch is a good word. Yeah. If you want yeah. to be fancy, you would say opus. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Somewhere between but batch and opus. But I'm not that pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. You know, of course, Stevie's version of Someday at Christmas is a classic, but it's been recorded by the Jackson 5, the Temptations, Diana Ross, Mary J. Blige, Jack Johnson, Pearl Jam, and many others. Do you have a personal favorite version? Well, of course, it would be impolitic of me to identify a favorite, but <laughs> <Of course. laughs> um, I was delighted to hear Justin Bieber's version of huh. it. Yeah. The boy can sing. He can, <laughs> it's true. You know, that's a very gratifying thing when it's uh, covered so many times. Right, 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 right. I went with a buddy to the Bahamas, and we walk into this club, and what do I hear but a reggae version of it? <laughs> wow. That's great. And that blew me away. Yeah. Because, yeah. as they say, who would have thunk it? <laughs> right. And they right. did a great job. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And again, the lyrics of this song do resonate today. That it was always a delight to write with Ron. His work is timeless. Hmm. I'm delighted and gratified that people still love the song and that it's played often and recorded many, many times. Wow. Brian Wells, what, what a nice guy. You know, he doesn't sound old enough to have written a song from 50 years ago. <laughs> I was actually thinking the exact same thing. I guess maybe the, uh, maybe the music kept him young. 
Well, being young at Christmas reminds me of Charlie Brown. You know, you mentioned Christmas Vacation earlier, and for me, it's not Christmas until I've watched the Peanuts Christmas special. Yeah. It's been on TV every year since my earliest childhood memories. I'm looking forward to watching it with my own daughter. Yeah, she'll love it. And, you know, it's it's amazing to me just something that's that much of a fabric of like our own childhoods and our culture that we got the chance to talk with the man who created a Charlie Brown Christmas way back in 1965 with with Charles Schultz and director Bill Melendez and you know even though it's a classic today um, everybody thought it was going to be a flop when it was first completed because it used jazz music, which was super weird at the time for animation. They had you know, actual kids do the voices of the characters instead of adult actors, which just wasn't done back in those days. Yeah, and the network thought the pacing was too slow. It was too religious, too offbeat, and just, just too weird. You know, Basically, they aired it because there wasn't enough time to fix it. But when it premiered, 45% of Americans watching TV that night were watching A Charlie Brown Christmas. And it's been a holiday tradition ever since. Well, let's get the inside scoop. I'm Lee Mendelson. Um, apologize for the bad cold I have right now, but I um, was the producer of the 50 Charlie Brown specials and four Charlie Brown movies, including, of course, the Charlie Brown Christmas. You know, most of the soundtrack for A Charlie Brown Christmas, of course, is instrumental, but there is that memorable original song with vocals, uh, Christmas Time is Here, which you, know, you, of course, wrote the lyrics for. And uh, I'd just love to hear about how that came about. Um, when we looked at the quote-unquote final cut of the Christmas show, I felt it really got off to a very slow start. Hmm. And there was a beautiful melody that Vince Guaraldi had written for the skating scene. And I said to Bill Melendez, maybe I can find somebody who would put some lyrics to that. Hmm. Right. And I called around town, and everybody was busy or they weren't interested. So ironically, I just sat down at the kitchen table took out an envelope, I remember, I just sketched some words in that would fit the music, and gave it to, to, um, I wrote it about five minutes, like you see when you talk to these different people, I guess, but (laughs) I handed it to Vince Guaraldi, he had been working with the boys' choir, they recorded it and got it in the last week of the show. So had, had you ever actually written song lyrics before? No. Wow. <laughs> that was the first one I had written. <laughs> well, not a bad first song. No, I know. It was very, very serendipity-like. Right, right. Now, I know that you were the, the producer of the Charlie Brown um, special. How did you first um, connect with, with Vince Guaraldi and get him involved? Because that music was so unique, you know, that you hadn't really seen that type of thing with animation before. I was doing a documentary on Charles Schultz back in 1963. And I was trying to figure out what kind of music, and I was driving over the Golden Gate Bridge, and as I always do, I had the jazz station on. I'm a big lover of jazz. Right. And for the first time, I heard this song, Cast Your Fate to the Wind, hmm. which I said to myself as I was driving, that's the kind of music I think that would be good for this documentary. It's childlike, but it's also contemporary jazz. Huh. Sure, yeah. And... Um, I called Ralph Gleason at the Chronicle. I was a jazz critic at the time. And I said, do you know who this Vince Guaraldi is? 
And he said, yes, he lives here. He's in San Francisco. So Ralph arranged a breakfast for us, and uh, we hit it off right away. And about a week later, he called and said, I have this song i got to play for you before I forget it. And he played this song, and I said, what do you call these? He says, Linus and Lucy. And I said, I'll tell you, that is absolutely perfect. did the Christmas show two years later, uh, Mr. Schultz and Bill Melendez and I decided that it'd be fun to have all kinds of music, yeah, not just traditional music, primarily have Vince come back and do the main uh, bulk of the music for the special, and there's no doubt in my mind that that music was the key to our success. Wow. Yeah. Now, I, I understand that when the, when the Charlie Brown Christmas special was was completed that nobody thought it was going to be a success because it was so it was so unusual compared to what had come before. We thought we'd ruin Charlie Brown. <laughs> it, it, it didn't work, and yeah. when we took it to the network. They didn't like it, and uh, they just thought it was too slow. It, you know, just in general, yeah. didn't like it. But um, I guess it was pretty unique at that time to have you know actual kids doing the voices and, yeah. and you know, having yeah. jazz, and, and it was just people must have up, looked up at in, it. Up until that time, we don't think that people ever used kids' voices. They would be adults playing kids. Wow. And I'm almost sure we were one of the first to use jazz music. And, of course, the album just went, uh, I don't know how many platinums it is, but we just went through four million in sales. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. And, and probably that, because so many kids watch that every year, it probably has a, a big influence on introducing kids to jazz. That's probably the first time a lot of yeah. kids ever hear jazz is when they see that. I know a lot of the people that went on to be great musicians were inspired by it. Yeah. Uh, Wyndon Marcellus, as a kid, picked up on it. Wow. Uh, David Benoit, as a kid, picked up on it. Yeah. And there are probably hundreds and hundreds of others that got into that wave of uh, spontaneity that we call jazz because of the show, and that's always been uh, one of my favorite outcomes. You know, I don't think it was until the late 80s that uh, Patty Austin did a, a, a cover version of the song with vocals, um, uh -huh. and, and since then it's been recorded by, I mean, Tony Bennett, Mariah Carey, Al Jarreau, Diana Krall, everybody, yeah. you know, it's become it's become a Christmas standard. Yeah. Other than the, the original version that appears in the film, which I'm sure is close to your heart, do you have a, a favorite version of the song that you've heard? It's interesting. They're all so different. Yeah. Hmm. You know, that I, I, it's hard to balance one against another, but I think somebody told me the other day it's been covered by over a hundred times. Wow. Wow. Um, uh, Diana Crawl, of course, has a great jazz version. Christmas time is here. Happiness and cheer. Fun for all that children call their favorite time. Snowflakes. Oh, I've just been thrilled and obviously shocked that these famous people would end up recording our little cartoon written on the back of an envelope. <laughs> right. The day you became an accidental songwriter. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, we're just very grateful for the various relationships we've had through that music. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know you're not oh. feeling great, but I, I appreciate it. So okay. you, you get some rest. <laughs> thank you. 
Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. While Songcraft will always be available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a valued supporter. Thanks for sharing some time with us. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters.